0: You're listening to the divestopedia exit strategy podcast where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them we elicit expert advice from exit planners attorneys merger and acquisition experts accountants business appraisers and financial advisors all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition.
1: This is Noah Rosenfarb here today with a great guest, Stuart Sorkin, not only an attorney but also an accountant, the co-author of Expensive Mistakes. Stuart's an expert in getting businesses ready for sale, and I'm real glad that he's able to join us today and provide you guys as listeners with some advice. So, Stuart, let's jump right into it, and maybe you could tell our listeners what some of the most common exit options are.
2: Well, actually, there are only six options to exit a business. You can sell it to family. You can sell it to employees or partners. You can sell it to a third party. You can become an absentee owner. The business gets liquidated or you die. If you don't choose one of those first four, the last two happen automatically, and neither of those necessarily produce the best result for the family of the business owner. Um, Family transfers are a wonderful vehicle if, one, your family member has the desire to run the business, the knowledge to run the business, and has entrepreneurial spirit. Your child may be a wonderful technician in one part of the business but unless he has the entrepreneurial spirit and the uh, understanding what he, what he need where he needs help to run the business it's not going to be successful um, when you're talking about acquisitions between partners or employees you need to be make sure that the employees have an entrepreneurial spirit. And you also have to make sure that if you're doing this as a staged exit where you're giving equity, that you can get it back. Uh, I had one client who was in the midst of a transaction where he was going to transfer a significant percentage of his company to three employees immediately prior to one of those. Um, One of the employees was... (laughs) caught sexually harassing the, other, the uh, other members of the firm, obviously not a good situation. Second person, all of a sudden her husband decided to move and she left the business. So using, using employees is a wonderful vehicle, but you got to make sure that they're willing to stay, they understand the entrepreneurial risks and rewards of being a business owner. Third-party sales will work. Are generally good deals. Um, the problem you're going to have is that depending on who your acquirer is, um, if you're being acquired by a larger company, uh, they're going to be less willing to pay a significant amount of goodwill. Because if they are a large successful business, they're looking at buying your client list probably maybe assets and some of your key personnel. So uh, third-party purchasers can t- it might have a tendency to give you a lower price than what you might get otherwise if, if they are a large acquirer. If it's a small acquirer, uh, that's probably the best route to go. And absentee ownership is wonderful, but uh, the one thing I tell clients is the day you know that you can walk out of your store and get hit by a truck and your business is viable is the day your business is ready for sale. Because when you sell, the one major change is you're not going to be there. If the business doesn't run without you prior to sale, it, ain't. it it's going to be harder to sell. Yeah, great advice. So
1: how, how do you suggest owners get onto that path where, you know, they can leave their business. They could go on a vacation. They okay. Can...
2: No. Um, I think the first mm-hmm. question that an owner, when they're getting close to thinking about this, is what's their number? What do they need to live on? Because there is no sense in selling the business, trying to sell the business, if you're not going to realize enough financial wherewithal from the sale of the business to be able to do what you want to do when you sell the business. So I think that's a key piece to figuring out because that will also tell you how much do you want by doing that. You then know, well, if I'm short, how am I going to get there? Am I going to get there by internal growth? or am I going to look potentially if I have some time at growth through acquisition? Each of those have various risks and rewards of of growth. So once you establish a number, then then at least you can say, okay, am I at the number or how much more do I have to get to get to the number? Um, Another issue that I tell clients is I don't care. You may have a time frame for when you're gonna sell the business. But when you're really gonna sell the business is likely when the buyer wants to buy the business. In that sense, you need to be prepared. I tell clients regularly that one of the first things they should do once they start to think about this path is they should get a good due diligence checklist and do a preliminary putting together of all the due diligence. This is a critical one because when you do that due diligence, it will provide the ability for you to hopefully document the price you think your business is worth. But secondly is that once you go to letter of intent, most letters of intent are contingent on due diligence. If your due diligence isn't done, you as a seller are going to be spending a tremendous amount of time dealing with due diligence. What does that mean? That means you're not sell, you're not working in the business. What happens to the value of the business if you're not working in the business? It possibly falls off. If due diligence runs an extended period of time, the buyer says, well, wait a minute, you projected you were going to do 20% higher in the in, in, in next quarter. You're down 5%. He's not going to buy off on the idea of saying, "Oh, well, you were doing due diligence, so you weren't selling." He's going to say, "I'm going. To, I want the price reduced." So, if you don't do your due diligence in advance uh, and are prepared for it, uh, you risk numbers. You risk spending time on a deal that may not close, and you look like an amateur. And if you look like an amateur, the buyer will try to take advantage of you. Um, the other issue is that if you think that the business is going to generate significantly more than the number, then there are ways to potentially transfer some of that, those proceeds effectively in a tax-effective way to the next generation. And if you're going to do that, you need probably a couple to do that transfer a couple of years before the sale to maximize the benefit so those are probably the three ones that I would look at as as key opportunities in uh, preparing for an exit. Let uh, me add one for, it, and that is. As we talked, as I said earlier, one of the keys in most businesses is their employees. What have you done to golden handcuff your employees? What have you done to make sure that they will stay after the acquisition so you can deliver that intact management team? Because if you deliver an intact management team, uh, you give the buyer more comfort the deal will be successful. And he knows, so therefore tying that together and tying in incentives to tie manage key employees in on sale is a very key issue.
1: Yeah, all great issues. Uh, You you mentioned one about tax planning, right? If If your proceeds are likely to exceed, you know, your needs, that you've got to do tax planning early on. Why don't you describe for our listeners some common strategies that you help clients implement?
2: Okay, Uh, the one that I tend to use a fair amount is the setting up of an irrevocable trust, which you then sell a portion of the equity to the trust for a note. Uh, There are several advantages of this type of transaction. One, generally, you're going to sell less than control. If you sell at less than control, the IRS will allow discounts for lack of control, lack of marketability, etc. So you could, depending on the level of risk you're willing to take, as well as what, you know, um, the amount you're willing to spend on getting a good business valuation, anywhere from 20 to 40 percent discount in the fair market value when you sell it to the trust. Since you're selling it for a note, there is no current income tax consequences to you. If the, And if you have transferred in at a 30% discount and then you can get compound growth of 10%, let's say for the three to five years that it's in this trust, you have shifted maybe 50% or more of the proceeds to the next generation. And you have a choice if it is a, the true home run. You can cancel a note as a gift or you can do other things to get rid of the note. And on the other side of the coin is that some clients say, well, what happens if it's not a full home run? Well, by the size of the note, at least when the proceeds come in, you can tap back at it. Um, within that framework if the spouse is not an owner in the business, the trust that we're talking about for the children might provide that the first, that the spouse is the first beneficiary so while you've given it away and you've shifted some of the tax consequences you haven't necessarily given up access to the principal so that would be that is one of the ways I like to uh, do income tax planning, obviously also, with how you structure um, any incentive compensation Um, and how that is going to be set up of whether it's going to be actual equity, which means basically you're giving away part of sales proceeds, or whether it's some form of bonus or phantom equity plan, which not only which not only reduce the proceeds, but gives you a tax deduction in the final year to reduce your tax liability. So those are two of the probably key areas in the pre-planning session that you can do to potentially do some income taxes. Additionally, one point I have to make is that businesses have this businessmen have this tendency to say, well, I'm not putting it all in the books. Well, let me say this, if you're not putting it all in the books to uh, minimize tax liability, then you better have a set of financial statements that show the, let's say, the fringe benefits and other types of things that you're doing that are reducing the income that won't be there when the acquirer purchases the business. Therefore, they can factor that in to the calculation of the purchase price. Yeah, you
1: know, all great strategies. Um, you know, one of the things you talked about is incentive compensation for a management team. And I think that kind of brings us to how, how do you introduce the, your executive team, your management team to the concept of preparing for an exit? What would you say is a, either a best practice or maybe something to avoid?
2: Well, let me say this. It- Really, is. first off is there are different levels of executives. There are those executives that they're needed, but they're probably that if someone was going to acquire you, they're eminently replaceable. There are some, let's say, like head of sales, who uh, is maybe very irreplaceable on a short-term basis in a sale. Uh, One is you need to figure out who are the key employees that an acquirer is going to look at as being essential to the management team and, therefore, want to know that they're going to have them there. The next issue, though, I think with employees is do they have the entrepreneurial spirit to become an owner? And what I mean by that is uh, a lot of these incentive compensation plans can be set up where it's basically a zero-sum game as far as bottom-line tax liability to the employee. However, the employee is giving up actual dollars to potentially get this equity. If the employee is not willing to give up something currently for this long-run ownership, then he may not be the right entrepreneur or have the entrepreneurial spirit to make it work. Uh, Another point uh, along those lines is when you're assessing the employee, you also need to have some idea of whether or not his family will support is becoming an owner. And what I mean by that is, is this. I have seen several deals where employees were going to buy the business, and they go to the bank, and the bank says, yeah, we'll finance it, not a problem. And But, oh, by the way, your wife will have to sign on the loan because we want to be able to tap you know, your, your home, potentially, if this deal falls through. If some spouses will never agree to that, and there is no sense in proceeding down the road, if with employee ownership, if your employees aren't going to have to be willing or able to complete the purchase at a later date, so um, you want to assess their their desire. You also have to assess something else, and that is I. I view most businesses like a three-legged stool. There's the finance and accounting, there's the sale and marketing, and there is the delivery of product or services. Most entrepreneurs start doing all three, and eventually the ones that are successful either take in partners or employees that fill, make sure all three roles are filled. If you're going to bring in, have executives do it, and they're only good the two out of the three. You need to make sure that that third leg is filled in some form before you uh, try to execute the exit strategy.
1: And and bring in those people, I guess, as soon as you could afford it, and as soon as you can uh,
2: take right. a role for them, right? Exactly. And 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 there and Pete and I think that most people don't understand that except with S corporations, you can have equity that'll do anything. And so you can give actual equity potentially to an employee, but have a vesting valuation, which means you that they have to stay a certain period of time before they re- realize full value for becoming an owner. Um, it, It has the advantages of getting the employee capital gains, has the advantage of tying them in more closely than using something like phantom stock or ordinary income, uh, and it doesn't have the negative tax consequences of ordinary income to the employee. But you need to make sure that, you know, once you give them this equity, that they're going to be there and be there for the time you need until the exit strategy and the beauty of LLCs and or C-corpses, you can create an employment class of equity that allows you to do that.
1: So let's talk about maybe the the topic of your book, expensive mistakes. And, -hmm. you know, give, give some examples of, kind of the expensive mistake you've seen made and how an owner might go about correcting that situation if they, if they see, you know, a bit of the story in, in the way their company exists today.
2: Well, as a, I think the one, as I, I've seen multiple situations where not the deli- not having that the owner is the ultimate bottleneck in the business and you've got to get yourself, out of them. You have to be able to effectively... Because what happens is, is this. If you have an owner who has, that is, is, has to make every decision, you end up with probably employees for the most part that are yes men, which means that, that they may not be able to run the business when you're there. And you probably are pushing out any employee who has any entrepreneurial piece because he's going to see that he's getting slapped down when he's ma- taking executive decisions, so why stay? So I think that that is a, a common theme that I've seen. I think um, there are a whole bunch of stories we could talk about with re- re- perpetuating family sales. For a minute, a true story. Um, I had a client who ran a very successful business for. 35 years. His son had been in the business for over 15 years. Son and father loved each other, but they had a completely different business philosophy. And at one point, the son said, Dad, either sell it to me or I'm leaving. Father decided to sell. Now, because it was a fit he was selling to his son, he didn't really document the deal as he should have because he was taking back paper. The seller, as well as he was going to be the landlord for where the facility was because he owned the building and the son couldn't afford to buy both. Well, what happens is that the son, after he takes over the business, decides he's going to uh, go out and build a second location. Father didn't know about this at the time. Son had a million-dollar overrun on the new facility and ended up putting both businesses in bankruptcy, which means the father lost the income from the note and the real estate was tied up in a bankruptcy court for 12 months where he couldn't rent it. Not a good situation. So even if you are selling to a family member, you need to document the the transaction. Um, Another issue is that, you know, Higher higher quality professionals. Uh, your lawyer or your CPA may be wonderful at reporting or doing the normal routine things that you would do to handle your business. They may have very little experience in the area of buying and selling businesses, and you can cost yourself. There are just untold stories of of clients entering into transactions based on a professional said, well, you know, I read about this and maybe we should do this without understanding what all of the options were to accomplish the goal and therefore uh, hire professionals. Make sure that you have people involved who understand and know the M&A business and assume that the other side, if you're not going to assume the other side probably has, and if you don't have it, if you don't have that professional expertise, you will probably, it it will probably cost you a lot of money. Um, You know, and as I said, the story I gave before about executives who are buying the business and decide and find out their wives won't sign the deal, You, you know, uh, I work on a very simple philosophy, uh, Noah, that exit strategy begins the day you start your business. Because if you don't know where you're going, how are you going to get there? How do you know when you reach the goal? This goes to the concept we talked about of figuring out what your number is. You need to know what that number is so you can develop your business and get it to where you can get the number. Unless you plan on dying with your boots on
1: and, and unfortunately, some people do, or they, they plan. Uh, yes, as if
2: they or or the liquidate. building or the business gets liquidated. I, you know, I've seen that scenario more more than once as well.
1: Yeah. Well, how about this, Stuart? Before before we uh, wrap up our interview for today, why don't you kind of sh- you know sh- share? Uh, like a, re- a recounting of maybe your best success story What what's the type of work that an owner
2: would okay well, actually the best success one of my best success stories is probably with my co-author um, Dick Stiglitz, I had run a government contracting business for twenty plus years. Uh, decided he wanted to cut back and wanted to sell. And what we did was, in that particular case, is we did have some time. We set up an irrevocable trust for the benefit of his children that became the owners of the equity uh, using the trust. He also avoided a situation where one of his children could be obstreperous regarding the sale of the business because he could control the tr- effectively control the trustee uh, and then we, and basically the trust was the majority owner of it, was one of the majority owners of the company when it was sold, and gave a if we were able through um, what was then called a private annuity transaction, able to defer the capital gains for a number of years on the sale, even though the money came in. Unfortunately, the IRS is. Now, outlawed that trans, uh, use of private annuities isn't in that way, so that savings isn't, isn't there. Um, but, um, and that's another issue that I want to point out that's real important. Uh, as the seller, decide whether or not you need, whether or not you have the wherewithal To stay with the company or not after in some cases you may need to stay for some period of time but I will tell you that the longer that you stay the more frustrated you will likely be because the issue is that for 20 or 30 years this has been your baby and you believe that no one else knows how to run it better and the issue you have at that point is you don't like. It's very frustrating to go into work into to work every day where you feel being heard. It also can have negative implications to the acquirer because the human nature being what it is, you might say things about that you would do differently, which will cause employment issues or morale issues for for the seller. For the buyer, so you have to be careful in knowing whether or not you have have the need, the desire, and the personality to stay with the business for any length of time after sale. And uh, there is a specific if you if your if your acquirer is acquiring with SDA, there's a specific limitation. You can't do more than a year. I've seen deals where people have done longer. I generally counsel against more than a year. Uh, for the seller to stay on afterwards and shorter would be better.
1: Yeah. And I guess getting sellers to a point where they could actually make that transition.
2: Exactly.
1: Uh, takes a lot of planning, right?
2: Exactly. It's a lot of planning. And um, as I say, in my general view, it's a three to five year process to do it right. Yeah. And, um, even though it's a three- to five-year process, if if the idea is that you need to have a five-year plan in mind of where you want your business to go, that's what I mean when I say as a strategy begins the day you start your business because you need to be thinking about, okay, five years from now, where do I want this business to be? So you have milestones in your own mind of what you're trying to achieve. Now, that may change three years into the transaction, and then you will do another five-year plan. But that's really what you're trying to do here is do a plan that's going to help grow your business to where you want it to be or or better um, and taking the steps along the way to do that.
1: Yeah. Well, great, Stuart. What else would you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up our call?
2: Uh, One comment about attorneys. Don't let your attorneys negotiate business deals. One, I have seen scenarios where attorneys have said to their longtime client, I think you should sell your business for $5 million. That should be your price. Without any support, due diligence, or anything else. On the same token is, as the transaction wears its way through from letter of intent to definitive agreement, generally what's going to happen is when the when the purchaser who usually prepares the uh, acquisition document sends the draft to the seller's counsel, there are going to be both business issues and legal issues generally lawyers shouldn't be discussing the business issues. The purpose of the lawyer at that point in time should be to point them out to the businessman and say, before we spend time and money on doing a finishing up these documents, let's make sure we can agree on the business points because a percentage of deals cave, during doing the definitive document. And if there turns out to be a significant substantive business point that comes up in the document <clears throat> that can't be agreed on, better to stop it then than to spend a whole bunch of time making documents legally work when they don't work on a business format. Yeah,
1: good advice. So, Stuart, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to, to catch you? Uh,
2: uh, the best way would be they can con- contact go to my website, which is com, or they can contact my office. Uh, I am located in Washington, D.C., but I do do this all over the country. I'm um, right now actually in New Orleans giving a seminar on this area um, at 301 320 five, two.
1: Great. Well, Stuart Sorkin, an attorney, an accountant, co-author of Expensive Mistakes, an expert in getting businesses ready for sale. Thanks so much for joining us. Our listeners, you could find more information about Stuart on our website, exitstrategysimplified.com. Stuart, thanks again for joining us today and sharing your insights and expertise. Thank you for the
2: opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.